What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguera. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me. It was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. I'm gonna, that's a good one, Matt. No, I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. This is a special episode for our Patreon subscribers and listeners. We appreciate you guys very much. And let's just get into it. Let's talk about David Berkowitz, the son of Sam killer. Uh, Bill, we tend to see a lot less serial killers from the New York metropolitan area or, or that state even. It, I don't have any stats on it, but it seems like a lot of them are from Florida and the Deep South and uh, places where it's easier to get guns. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's definitely true or not, but I mean, we've we got a few of them. The last guy we did before um, Son of Sam was from New York. You know, we have, uh, uh, of course, Joseph Nasa was born in Rochester, New York. Rodney Akala was in. New York for a while. He's from California, but um, we have a few. I mean, it's, it's, it's not unheard of, you know, the torso killer of New York, of course. Yeah, I mean, I can't, um, I can't back it up. It just seems like the population distribution, there's not as many as there are from other parts of the country, but I don't know. I, 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 maybe I shouldn't talk if I can't back it up with real stats. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're, you're right. As, as far as the state's New York isn't as prolific as, say, California in terms of the amount of serial killers that pop up in California. Um, you know, maybe because it's more of a metropolitan area, it's larger California, a lot more uh, people, and that may be one of the reasons, but, you know, we have the Long Island serial killers, so a few in, in New York, a few famous ones. Uh, but, yeah. So, yeah, the son of Sam guy, he was also known as the 44 caliber killer. Um, this guy loved the media. Uh, there's not a whole lot of stuff that we can talk about in terms of where he was as a child. He wasn't, you know, a kid that was uh, crazy. He wasn't disturbed because his parents were abusing him. There's no sexual abuse. There's no physical abuse. There's nothing we can really pinpoint that says, wow, or these so-called experts can step up and say, oh, this is the exact reason why he turned into this guy, and which it just serves, again, to... Uh, highlight the whole thing that this guy was born this way to do what he does um, so you know he's born in New York of course he's actually born uh, Richard David Falco you know he's born in 1953 June the 1st I believe and his mother look this of course isn't perfect but his mother um immediately puts him up for adoption. He 
doesn't um, he doesn't know this. Of course, he's an infant, so he has no idea. Um, she was a you know a single woman. I mean, she was married for four years. She the guy left her for some other woman, and she had this affair with a married man, and he is the son of Sam's father. But he basically told his mother that he had to get rid of the kid and not use his name as the child's uh, name. So she put him up for adoption, got rid of him, and he was adopted by a couple, a couple out of um, the New York area, and those were uh, Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz. They were a Jewish couple. They weren't rich, they weren't poor. They had a hardware uh, store. They were childless. So when they adopted him, they changed his name by just really, real creative people here. They just reversed his name. Instead of from Richard David, they made him David Richard and added Berkowitz because his last name was Falco, which by the way, was the name of the man that his mother, meaning Birchwitz, Birchwitz's mother, Elizabeth, brought her. That's the name of her husband, Falco. She used that name. And her, his real father's name, the biological father, was Joseph uh, Klein, or Kleinman, which obviously he's out of the picture and stuff. So young, uh, young David grows up in a normal uh, household. He's intelligent, above average, didn't uh, like school, but he graduates from a high school without a problem. He did have a few issues with conduct in high school, I mean, in, in elementary school, which I think, Matt, I think you probably did too. You know, they, they always said to the principal's office and sometimes they they have someone look at you as a psychotherapist or whatever, but there was no real issue there, so nothing came of it. There are reports that he was obsessed with petty theft and lighting fires. Okay, so there is an indication of what I talk about that he's feeling through the dark. He is He's looking for himself and trying to find out who he really is. And he starts with these particular, uh, I guess, actions, lighting fires, petty theft. Let me call back. Hey, there we are. Yeah. It's all right. So he's not killing animals. He's lighting fires, which a lot of kids do. I mean, that could mean a lot of different things. But if he's like lighting a fire in an alley, it's like, you know, who cares? Shoplifting, pretty much every kid I knew did that. I went through it a little bit, you know, a few times, and I didn't like the feeling of getting caught, so I stopped. But most every kid I knew shoplifted, so this is all pretty normal stuff. Yeah, I mean, look, all of us have our our moments as kids that we do these crazy things, and, you know, some kids are fascinated with lighting fires. Look, I, I, I would... I would venture out to say that I'm sure that you know probably seven out of eight kids boys do petty thefts they experiment with lighting a few fires but they stop it doesn't really float their boat it's not who they are but with this guy in majority of serial killers they're doing these actions because they're really trying to find they're getting a thrill out of it and it's really heightening their sense of who they are and they just keep experimenting more and more to get to a different level. Some do it quicker than others, 
this guy, he he really likes light fires. And the only thing I could see in his childhood that would suggest that he had a little bit of a, a difficult childhood, which all of us do, is that his adoptive mother, who he considered his mother, dies of breast cancer when he's relatively young. He's a young uh, adolescent. And he doesn't like his father's new wife because his father uh, marries relatively quickly. But there's really no issue. That's, that's basically it right there. He doesn't like his father's new wife. And I'm sure there are some issues at home because, because of it. And, you know, 50% of, of uh, marriages result in divorce. So we have 50% of the population involving boys that are going through some type of traumatic issue regarding family life. It all turned out to be all serial killers. But um, young David, he, you know, he graduates from high school and joins the army. He uh, serves in the infantry division in South Korea. He's not an outstanding soldier. He's not a bad soldier. After his stint there, he is discharged with honors. At which time he locates his birth mother. He goes to look for the mother that is really his birth mother. And it's there that he finds out that his real father basically hadn't wanted nothing he finds out that his real father, his biological father, wanted nothing to do with him or his mother, and that he feels maybe abandoned. I mean, I get that. That's not that traumatic for me. I mean, at least not for me. I don't think that most men or young men at that time are going to be moved to murder because of that. But it is shortly after that that he begins these attacks. And again, I remember I mentioned that these guys really feel who they are and what uh, what MO or what signature really resonates with him. So he begins to attend Bronx Community College and he's working as a taxi driver um, in the Bronx. But it is at this time, we're talking 1975, that the first attacks begin. And this is what happened, Matt. So on Christmas Eve, two women, one is only 15 years old, her name is Michelle Foreman, is stabbed six times. And the other girl is stabbed as well, but not severely. Both of them survive. And the guy runs away. He is never suspected of this. But it's actually Bersowitz who does this. And then shortly after that, in July 29th, 1976, is where the first shooting starts. And it's in Pelham Bay, the neighborhood in Pelham Bay. It's just after 1 a.m. And a young woman, lady, Donna Laurie, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Is 18 years old. She's an emergency medical technician. And her friend, Jody Valente, who's 19, and she's also a nurse. They're parked in their car. And they're not really doing anything. They're just parked. And one of the girls, the passenger cycle, opens the door of the car. And she gets out when she notices a man approaching. She says something to her best friend, like, what is this about? And the guy suddenly 
Army produces a gun from a paper bag. He crouches down in a military-sized book uh, with his knee up and his elbow post on, posted onto his knee. And he aims the, 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 the gun, which is a 44 caliber, and he shoots, hitting um, the young woman, Laurie, and he has a Donna Laurie, hits her in the chest, and he kills her instantly. He fires twice more. He hits Jody Valente in the leg, and the other shot, he misses completely. The bullet stuck in the stucco of, a, of an apartment building, and he just walks away. There is no um, any kind of hunting, stalking, anything. Bersowitz is an organized, unorganized killer because he had no idea these young women would be their part at one in the morning. Just that's just the way it is. But it, but there's no ritual here, Matt. With most serial killers, there's a ritual. They stalk, they hunt, they grab, they torture, they rape, they do all these things as a personal, almost a relationship between them and the victim at the time of the crime. With this person, there is none. He walks up, anybody in particular, they do fit a particular MO, of course. Someone's part, number one, in a car or by themselves, or there's a couple. Usually the women have long brown hair. That's one of the things that they, and he just walks up, shoots me and walks away. There's no personal dialogue. There's no personal intimate relationship that he can perceive as an intimate relationship. None, Matt. Yeah, this seems very strange. So, yeah, it it seems like it almost just comes out of nowhere because he goes from being, like, slightly troubled all of a sudden the way I'm hearing the story, it's like he gets a gun and just starts shooting people. Like, what signs do you think there were? There weren't any outward, like, obvious signs, it sounds like, but can you speculate on, like, how his behavior was devolving at this point? Yeah, it looks like he has a pretty good grasp of who he wants to be, but you're right, there are no outward signs. He is working during this first one and the first couple of, uh, of uh, attacks. And actually, through all of the attacks till he's arrested, he's actually a working guy. At first, he is, of course, a taxi driver. But he evolves and gets a, a, a position at the post office. He's a post office worker. He, this guy is holding a job. He's doing everything. There seems to be no outward signs that would make him go from a relatively normal guy that gets out of the army to suddenly a guy who's just shooting and murdering people because he didn't quit his job he didn't suddenly change so that's a little strange that just from one day to the other and in this case it's different than most cases we could say well most serial killers you don't know what they suddenly start killing well that's not absolutely true because with most serial killers it escalates little by little they are torturing animals they may grab a person, they rape them, and or they become rapists for a number of years, like the Golden State Killer, and then they graduate to the other thing because the thrill needs to be quenched more. They need to have that their thirst for this particular adrenaline rush to control all those. The gratification needs to escalate as they go along, and their MO begins to change, and they get a signature. But this guy, it's different. It just goes from zero to a hundred from one day to the next. Of course, later on, we see more into the depth of how he was acting, but there 
still seems to be a cliff that's jumped off of at one point. So let's go on with what this guy does. So the same year, on October 23rd, which is just right around the corner from when this other one had the couple months, a similar shooting occurs. It's a residential area in Flushing's Queen. A guy named uh, Carl, I hope it's Carl, I don't think it's Carol, it's uh, Carl 20, security guard, and Rosemary Keenan, 18, she's a college student, are sitting in her car. They're parked. And they're talking, and suddenly the window explodes in the... Suddenly the window explodes and the car looks like it's been rocked by something. Um, the young lady, Rosemary, starts the car and they're hearing gunshot, but they don't know where it's coming from. They haven't seen a perpetrator, um, but both of them are bleeding. Um, Carl is bleeding from the head from a wound. And later on, when they arrive to the hospital, they both make it, but a metal plate has to be placed in his skull where the bullet entered his, his temple. Um, but again, the cops make no connection to the cases because back then, as we've discussed a number of times, law enforcement did not share information, not in the same city, not in different cities. In this case, they just didn't share anything at all. So the guy again runs away and no one sees him. They don't know who he is. And the following month, November 27th, 1976, a high school student, Donna, and I hope I don't mess up his last name, Demasi, she's 16 years old, and her friend, Joni Lomilo, she's 18. And they see a guy approach them to ask for directions. He immediately just pulls out the gun and shoots both girls and runs away. Both girls survive. They're both shot with 44 caliber weapons, a monster gun. But Donna Lomilo becomes a paraplegic after that because the gunshot severed her spine. So as you can see, Matt, this guy, there is no interaction. There, he doesn't know the victims. He's unorganized. There's nothing to it. He just walks up and shoots them like a thrill. And that's really what I believe is going on here. I, a lot of people call this guy a serial killer, and I understand why. Killed more than one person, more than three people. Uh, he had an MO, and he had a particular uh, victim in mind, usually women. And since the guys thus far... Uh, like Carl, they had long hair. He may have mistakenly thought that both the people in the car were girls or women, young women. And he shoots them and he runs away. He really didn't have time to look and see who really was in the car because you probably know when you're in a car late at night, the, the windows fog up a little bit. It's dark. It's hard to see things. It's not like this place where everything is lit up. He could have made a mistake, Matt, and uh, really mistaken the guy for a girl. But as you can see, this guy is just on a tear. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about his MO a little bit because usually, well, always, you know, serial killers, what makes them serial killers? 60 seconds remaining. 
the serial killers, what makes them a serial killer is the gratification. And you just said he's getting a thrill out of it. But is that enough to classify it as like the classic kind of gratification that we see? Yeah, you're right. It isn't a classic case. And that's a big question mark with Son of Sam with me up in terms of being a serial killer. Because I'm looking for that gratification. The sexual one's not there. I'm looking for the control one. I don't actually see it. It's suggested, but I don't see anybody called that. Yes. Okay, so it doesn't take him long to get back in the saddle and run again. January 30th. Less than 60 days after that, 1977. Christine Front, 26, and her fiance, John. Oh my God, these last names kill me. But her fiance, John Neal, he's 30 years old. They're sitting in a car. Again, they're in a, in a, in a car. It's kind of an isolated area. It's called Forest Hills in Queens. When they're about to drive away, gunshots are heard and the window shatters again. Same thing, he shoots them through the window. They drive away, or Dill tries to drive away, uh, when he has minor injuries from the glass exploding, cuts to his face, but his fiance uh, dies at the hospital. She's shot several times, but neither one sees a killer. But by now, police are already beginning to put out the media that the 44 caliber killer is out there. A lot of women this time in New York, I remember this, they were cutting their hair because one of the, the I guess, the, the identities or the looks that all these women had in common one up there, that they were brunettes with long hair. So the media really focused on, well, this killer, this serial killer, is killing women with long hair brown hair and so women responded in all of New York by cutting their hair they would dye their hair other colors it's really strange but this is exactly the kind of stuff the media sometimes does that really focuses the public on these issues and you know already the media is talking about this guy and on March 8th he strikes again 1977 Virginia and I'm like an attempt to say this last name because it's Vokorinich. V-O-S, Vos Karinich. It's, it's horrible and not just bad. But she's a 19-year-old student at Columbia University. And she's walking down the street from her school. She's on her way home. This is only a block where the previous murder happened. And she is suddenly confronted by an armed man and he pulls out a gun, a 44 caliber bulldog, that's what he's using. She puts up her textbooks, almost in a way as a shield to block from what she's expecting to be a gunshot wound, and he shoots her. The bullet, of course, a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, penetrates the books, striking her and killing her. No one sees this guy. A lot of reports that guy may have been running away. They don't know exactly if it was the guy or not, but the media explodes. It is really going front page news. 44 caliber killer strikes again. It strikes terror in 
in New York area, and it gets really a, a worldwide buzz because of the media. There's all this be on the lookout stuff for him and this monster, but what is his home life like when he's not killing people, which is 99.9% of the time? Is he this deranged lunatic or is he blending in? Yeah, he's blending in. He's a postal worker. No one knows of him. No one looks inside of his apartment. You know, obviously, he doesn't have a normal home life. He, there's no reports that he had a fiance or a girlfriend like that. He's a good, the guy looks like a dweeb. But, I mean, there's nothing about him that really sticks out, uh, which is a lot of the taste of these guys. You don't really see these guys ring around with a horn or horns in their head praising the devil and stuff because they're easy to blend a normal human being. And unless a red flag goes up, no one really is looking at these guys. But it doesn't take him long to keep going. The following month, less than 30 days later, this guy is at it again. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. Alexander Asua is a 20-year-old truck driver, or coke truck driver, and Valentina Surini. She's 18. She's a Logan College student, and they're sitting in her car in Hutchinson's River Parkway. It's a service road in the Bronx. It's pretty, um, you know, uh, out of the way. There's not a lot of traffic there. Um, it's only a few blocks where the previous murders happened. And their neighbors hear four gunshots. And when they call the police, they arrive, they find Valentina, and she's in a driver's side seat. She's stooped over, and she's deceased. She with two gunshot wounds to her head. Um, Alex, the young man that she was with, is um, also shot in the head um, and dies at the hospital. No one's ever identified, and police know it's a, it's the same gun from the previous killings. And this case is actually never attributed to Berkowitz until uh, much later. But there is a letter found at the crime scene, and the letter identifies him or himself as the son of Sam. In this of the media, you really get a look at the son of Sam. They start calling him that. And because they've been calling him the 44 caliber killer. And he has this long rambling uh, letter. And at the very end, he signs it, Mr. Monster, yours in murder. I mean, it's really hijink stuff. You know, he probably saw the stuff going on in California with the, um, Zodiac Killer, and here's where the media and people can really start speaking about, look, this is classic serial killer gratification, because he has now unfolded a layer of himself. He is controlling the media, he's controlling the narrative by naming himself, and he's also controlling the narrative, controlling the media by writing all these letters where they're putting in the media and he's receiving gratification because of the attention drawn to himself, which we and I, you and I have seen in cases prior, one of them being the case we just did last week of the guy who murdered um, John Walsh. Um, so we have this because he talks to the media. We also had Kemper, your boy, that's the six foot eight, you know, mountain troll 
who loves to talk while he's in prison. He gets John Douglas, the FBI profiler, and gets all these books written about him. He does it because he's controlling the narrative. He's doing it because it furthers his crime in his mind that he's still in control, therefore he's getting gratification. And this is where we see that Birchwood is doing the same thing. Um, so that's the first letter. Another letter is sent to Jimmy Burslin of the, and forgive me for screwing up these names, of the Daily News. And that's a handwritten letter, which is a tribute to Birchwood. And the letter is published a week later in a newspaper where he just rambles on about all this satanic stuff and all that he's been told by by uh, Sam, the son of Sam, to murder, to kill pretty blonde, uh, brown-haired women and all this crazy stuff. So, you know, he's a little weird and stuff, but it's who he is. And it, this is where people really begin to think this guy's a serial killer. And, then, and I concur. I think that he is receiving gratification from... Uh, controlling the media and maybe himself like PK did as well so yeah so does this end here I mean he's already shooting all these people and what happens next well yeah it doesn't end there it's on June 26 1977 Sal Lupo 20 a mechanic helper a mechanic helper and Judy Placido 17 they're sitting in a parked car at 3am when shot into the car, and both are shot, but they survive. And this is an interesting twist in the case, because the newspaper articles say that he's incompetent. They say that the victims survived because this guy is a coward. He won't stay to finish the job. It's, it's, it's kind of twisted, so to get this guy to come, I think it's a huge mistake to do it, but it takes them to respond. The following month, July 31st, Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Valente, they're both 20 years old. They are in Robert's car and they're near the Bath Beach where a man out of nowhere, and this guy, they're making out, it's a makeout spot, not that big of a deal. A man approaches the car, I mean, quickly. It's not even, he just walks up to them, pulls out the revolver, shoots Velocity to the left eye, and he loses his eye. Stacy Motowicz, she is shot again, but she's the only blonde woman that's ever shot in all these cases, and she dies from her injuries. But this is when things go bad for South Sam. A few days later, on a tip from a woman who saw a police officer putting several tickets in cars that were parked near that area because she heard the gunshots. Law enforcement then started checking all the tickets. One of the cars that was ticketed was Birchwitz. So once they started investigating all the people, they see his name and they're going to call him for an interview. And it's really interesting because everything is tied together in this case very strangely. And this is the time. When a detective calls the Yonkers Police Department, which is the district that Berkowitz is in, the dispatcher recognizes the name. 
she tells the detective, I know Bertowitz. He's not a good guy. He shot my father Sam's dog. And when she mentioned the name Sam, the detective began to feel that he had the right man. So, think about that. How strange a normal police officer, detective, calls the Yonkers Police Department, he mentions the name, and the dispatcher herself knows who, she, who Berkowitz is because she lives behind his house. And it happens that Berkowitz shoots her dog and her father, Sam, is, the, is very upset about it. So, the following day, they locate the car in question. And officers walk up to the car. And I don't know what this guy was thinking, but in the car, they can see in the back seat a 44 Bulldog sitting right there. It's in plain sight. So, you know, search and seizure laws allow in plain sight view you can go into the car. They go into the car and they find a duffel bag with maps of all the crime scenes. There's another letter from the son of Sam to the detective in charge of the son of Sam task force. His name is Timothy Dowd. So they're about to get a, a, uh, a search warrant when they see him, Birchwood, exit his, his apartment and go to his car. One of the detectives, a John Falatico, approaches the driver's side and pulls out his revolver. He pulls his weapon, points it at Son of Sam, if you want to call him that, Berkowitz, and his partner, William Gardella, he comes on the other side of the car, the passenger side, pulls his gun, and they pull him out. They find in a paper bag a 44 bulldog he's carrying. And he flatly just says, by the way, yeah, yeah, you got me. It's me. Yeah, so I think now this is one of the first times, if not the first in American history, where people are becoming aware of the insanity plea and and you now have this guy who it's being covered in detail that maybe he's trying to take advantage of this of this loophole. Or maybe he's totally insane because you have to be in, insane to some degree to do what he's doing, but this kind of starts a whole conversation based on his behavior, doesn't it? It does. Well, that's part of the reason. He goes in and he pleads um, in insanity to defense. He tries to maneuver that, this whole, well, he starts talking about the son of Sam, of course, that uh, the dog is possessed by a demon, and that demon has instructed him to kill pretty brunette women. And he pushes this thing. I mean, he, you know, he starts acting funny, they go into his apartment, they find posters of the, you know, demons of satanic worship, they find a black Bible, they find a bunch of stuff that would suggest is obsessed with all these different things. Along with things that they find, you know, and I had to smile when I, when I read this, they find all these diaries. And this clown was detailing all of the arsons he's done. So when you asked earlier, well, you know, we don't see any behavioral things here, you know, no torturing animals, but this guy was a serial arsonist. He was lighting, which is possibly 
hundreds of fires, actually over a thousand fires he's documented in his diaries that he lit in the New York area. I mean, did he blow up his numbers? Maybe. I don't think he did because this was never supposed to be found. This was a personal diary. So he was doing this stuff. And along with a bunch of maps he found, he found things about where he struck. He, he circled areas where he had been striking. So maybe the gratification is there, but it's almost backward. It's reversed. Like it's dyslexic. It's dyslexia. Am I saying that correctly? Dyslexia. Dyslexia. There you go. So what this guy was doing was he would randomly kill people parts and then come home and draw circles and maps. Maybe that's where the gratification came, as well as the media. But as you mentioned, he tried the, the insanity offense. They found him competent to stand trial. And then he changed his whole story. He said that, well, he just made up the whole son of Sam, son of Sam, uh, son of Sam deal, and that he had uh, he did it for kicks. So that kind of got the public to see what this guy was about. But it really doesn't end there, Matt, because this guy, and we talked about this before we started the episode. He he, he needs structure, and I've noticed that in a lot of guys that I've dealt with who are in prison or even killers or serial killers. You know, we see that he's in a home life, there's a structure there, he doesn't act out too much. He goes into the army, another structure, and he's pretty controlled in there. When he leaves the army, there is no structure, and it doesn't take very long for him to graduate from lighting fires to murder. And it really allowed him to be who he was made to be, was a killer. This is what he did, this is what he was born to do. Killers aren't made, not serial killers. They're born this way. And he goes to prison, and sure enough, what happens? He looks for structure. He becomes an evangelical preacher. He's a Christian, he's talking all this stuff, and he still loves that attention. He's really not getting it, so what does he do? Boom, he goes to the media again. Of course, Son of Sam is talking again, and immediately he starts telling a story that he was involved in a cult. And now you and I, the last case that we had, which was the, um, were the two clowns we just talked about, Matt? The, um, the torso killer and the previous ones, the hillbilly killers, which were the name, the, the guys that confessed to the, um, Otis Tool, right. So Otis Tool was similar. You know, he was a, uh, light fires, light all this stuff, so this guy goes to prison and does the same thing to him. Start talking about what he did and what he did to do to get the media involved again. And they do. They bite. They can't help themselves. They he starts talking about a cult that he was involved with. And here's the real catch. That his accomplices and by the way, law enforcement believed that Son of Sam, Berkowitz, had accomplices. That this wasn't a one man show. They were never able to prove that, but they had this in their notes that they believed there were more than one accomplice to these deaths. So he begins to spin the yarn that his accomplices, and you're gonna love this, were actually the sons of the guy Sam, who actually, he shot his his Labrador retriever. So this guy starts to tell the people in law enforcement while he's in prison that 
Sam's actual sons were his um, his accomplices throughout this whole thing, and that they are actually the ones that killed three of the people that he's also copying to that he did. So that's old new twist. Unfortunately for this guy, um, both guys died before he brought this to the attention of authorities so they could never substantiate it. But it's kind of convenient. They're dead. He knows they're dead. Why not put the blame on someone who's already dead? So that's, I mean, <laughs> I found that really interesting. I kind of smiled, thought, this guy's in prison. He's just thinking about these things and coming up with scenarios. They're going to help him some way, somehow. And by the way, the names of his accomplices were John and Michael Carr. Sam Carr is the owner of the dog who he shot. And what a story came up, the son of Sam. Yeah, kind of interesting, though, if you think about it, right, Matt? I mean, he's not saying the dog of Sam. He's saying the son of Sam. And his two accomplices, according to him, were actually the sons of Sam. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, uh, hey, if I were the sons of Sam, I'd have whooped his freaking ass for even suggesting some dumbass shit like that, right? Which makes you believe that's not even close to being true because if you're actually the son of Sam, you don't want your accomplice telling people, hey, by the way, I'm the son of Sam. It kind of leads to believe that it could be directly pointed at them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting just from kind of a thousand yard view of this guy, just probably a nerdy, socially inept guy with a desperate need for attention. Um, yeah, that's, no, you're absolutely right. That's what, it, that's what it comes down to. He's irrelevant and he doesn't like it. So what's the best way to get some attention? Get some books written about you, tell the media if you have some information. It's the same thing these guys are doing. We've seen it. And Kimber does it. A number of these guys do it. Tool did it. They just want attention. They want to be in the center of the limelight again and receive a bit of that control by putting out these stories and getting people to come talk to them. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to sound like one of these pseudo-psychologist guys that are published in the... New York Times and everything, and I don't think this would have any bearing really on the case, but is there something about identity and the fact that, from what I can see, he's like half Italian, but he was born with an Italian name and, you know, and, and then given up and then adopted by this Jewish family in a place that's kind of provincial. So... I think it's safe to say maybe he had a pretty strong identity crisis and he, he never really found his identity, but could this whole thing have been, I don't know, something regarding finding an identity? Yeah, well, I, you know, anything's possible, I don't think. So I think this guy, and some of his family members said that he was a bully. He wasn't victimized. He was actually the one always bullying people. It doesn't seem so to me. I think this guy's a bad seed. It's like I've mentioned him. These serial killers are born this way. And sooner or later, this guy was going to strike. Whether it was 44 or 9, you know, whatever. He, he didn't see the kind of gratification and power from a knife they did with a gun. If that's this guy's thing, he, he needed to feel powerful. A knife didn't give it to him. A gun did. And, uh, yeah, this guy's just a bad seed. But, 
you know, good riddance, but, you know, this is really a case that I found very interesting because of all the nuances and because all the little names he invented, he kind of carried the narrative. So, question, is he a serial killer? Is he not a serial killer? Now that we've reviewed the case the way we have, and we've taken a look at his actions, I believe he is. And the gratification is the control that he got from writing the letters, speaking to the police, and then later on in life, of course, copying these murders. You know, in 1993, he actually copped to some of these stabbings and murders that no one knew he was a part of. The stabbings in 1975, no one knew about him. But he held that. He held it until 1993, and then he released it. And of course, the media came right back to his doorstep. Yeah, it's kind of this malignant narcissism. It reminds me, honestly, of Kanye West in that he's <laughs> trying to get attention and, and he'll just go more and more extreme. And at some point, I think the return diminishes because he's like, okay, I'm an evangelical now. Does anyone care? Not really. I was in a cult. You know, does anyone care? And he's got to keep upping it. But the more he kind of ups it, the more at some point people just grow tired of it. And then I guess that's why he starts confessing to more murders. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And what the reference to Kanye West, but the guy's obviously a brilliant musician, and I don't call them artist. He's a musician, he does whatever he does. But he's a moron. I mean, come on, let's be honest. Kanye West is a freaking moron. You know, he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. He's insulting Jewish people, he's insulting people, but then he cries the racial card when someone does it to him. It's, and look, he's got mental issues, obviously. He's got some issues that need to be dealt with as a psychiatrist and intense emotional scrubbing he needs. But look, it's what today's society is all about, man. These men that do these things don't really, they don't feel that they need to be accountable or they play the victim role and they act a certain way and they blame it on, well, you know, all these other reasons why I'm doing this. And, you know, I'm, I'm an artist, I'm uh, pushing the line. Uh, I don't buy it. You know, yeah. but look, at least Kanye West is not a serial killer. He never will be. He's got some loose screws. He needs to be. Look, most artists are. Van Gogh, Picasso, all the most of the artists that are successful, that are referred to as artists, have these issues. They see things that no one else sees in, in life. And that's what makes them a little bit different, a little more peculiar. And we can't compare Kanye West to uh, Berkowitz, but um, yeah. That's that's a whole different story, but yeah, this that is the story of Son of Sam. Now you guys understand where he got the name from. It's kind of silly if you think about it, but the whole demon dog thing was kind of a funny thing. Yeah, the name Son of Sam sounds really cool, and then when you realize the explanation for it, it's incredibly stupid. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, All right. well, we'll be back. Right yep, we'll be back next week with another show. Thank you to our small. Thank you to all our subscribers. And yep, that's our cue. We got to get out of here. We'll see you next week. Until then, yeah, I've been be Matt safe. Ralston. Go ahead. Yeah, be safe. Your work surroundings. Your luck could depend on it. We'll see you next time.